0: And You may be seated. If you want to find your Bibles, we are in the book of Ruth. If you're new here, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It is a delight to have you with us. One of the things that we do here at Fellowship Bible Church is we take a book of the Bible and we walk all the way through it and we do a deep dive because we really want to know God as he's revealed himself in his revelation. We're going to do that as we go through the book of Ruth. You know, this book, I'm sure you're familiar with it if you've been a Christian for some time, but it is like one of the hidden gems of the Bible. People have familiarity with the book, but oftentimes have never really encountered the profound spiritual truth and the depth of doctrine that you find in these four chapters. This book addresses one of the most profound questions that is ever asked. I'm sure that you have faced it, and that is this. I know that God is great, but the question is, but is he good? And specifically, is he good to me? We know that God is great. I mean, you can just, just through observance at a macro level, looking at the universe, the world, absolute powerful design, but you can even take it microscopically and you're seeing, wow, this is profound We see God's greatness. We know, like it says in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. But life has a way through its disappointments and devastating effects, through brokenness, the fallenness, the issues that take place in our hearts, the people that have hurt us, uh, the calamities that we face, whether it be as a world, as a nation, or as a family, it may bring you to a place where you 're asking this question: God, I know that you 're great, but are you but are you good specifically, are you good to me? You know when you think of the problems in our world like a pandemic or wars or nine eleven, or you think of just health issues that you faced or grief that you were going through. Or a wayward child that you're just like, I can't even believe that we're living through these experiences. And then you couple that with the fact that, you know, not only I see brokenness and fallenness around, but I myself have got a lot of failure. I have most certainly let God down at times, I have effectively hurt people in my life. I've personally been a deep disappointment. And I just look in the mirror and I realize, like, I've even let myself down. And when you wed the calamities of a fallen world, coupled with the problems of a human heart and brokenness in relationship and in your own life and your health, it can marry two words that were never meant to be joined together bitter believer. Perhaps you've met someone like this, they're a believer. But their heart and their life is contorted with bitterness. Perhaps you saw such a person when you looked in the mirror this morning. And I want you to know that trusting in God is not going to exempt you from the hardships and the pains and the difficulty of this life. And God at times brings us through some extremely difficult experiences. And we see that as we begin the book of Ruth. You find that God at times allows his people to experience the downward spiral of a nation. Take a look, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The book of Ruth takes place in Israel's history where they did not have a king. There was no established monarchy. It was during the time of the judges when God had brought the people into the promised land, of the land of, that's known as Israel. Uh, before they had a king, they were ruled by a series of 14 judges. Uh, these were leaders that God raised up, and they would oftentimes have civil roles but sometimes even have to fight battles in a military fashion, to chase out those who were occupying them. And it kind of had this pattern, you know, where they were like kind of living life on their own, doing it own, and kind of abandon God. God would bring judgment. He would raise up after people started crying out for God to be merciful. He'd raise up a judge and these judges would show up. But the period of judges could be summarized like it says in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel And everyone did what is right in his own eyes. Moral relativism was the mainstay of the day. People did what they wanted, what they felt was right, what they wanted to do. And it really was kind of a series of going deeper and deeper into depravity. It was really kind of the dark ages of Israel's history, a time of great spiritual declension, The times where they abandoned the one true God and doing everything for them. They'd kind of just lock on to the little gods of this world, especially those that were in their area in which they lived. And you're like, well, how bad did things get? Well, from a leadership level, you've got uh, got leaders that were full of excessive pride, like full of themselves, like a guy like Gideon. Great start, disastrous end, family tragedy. Or their final leader, a guy who showed a lot of promise, stud athlete, like superhuman strength, a guy by the name of Samson, and lust just consumed him. Wickedness ran rampant, homosexuality was practiced and in public, relationship with God was largely absent whether even among those who professed to know God and to be worshipers of the one true God, it was just oftentimes spiritual malaise. The time of judges actually looked a lot like our culture and in our time, where everybody did what they wanted, what you thought was best. And notice um, in this time uh, that of this famine that they went to a place, a sojourn, a temporary journey for a time in the land of Moab. Moab is east of the Dead Sea. It's about a 50-mile journey. Here's a map for you to see kind of where they would go. It's about a 50-mile journey around the Dead Sea, and you'd be in the land of Moab. Now, the Moabites all came about, uh, this is part of of. Abraham and Israel's dark history, but came a result of Lot, Abraham's nephew, and an incestuous encounter with his oldest daughter. She gave birth to a child that started the line of Moabites, and that trajectory of moral just chaos and depravity continued, and the Moabites really became enemies of the people of Israel. You see this like in Numbers chapter 22. Remember when God was bringing the people out of Egypt, when they'd been slaves, took them through the, uh, the desert, did some training, gave them the law for about 40 years. When they're trying to make their way into the promised land, the Moabites, man, they want nothing to do with that. The Moabites, like uh, Balak, the king of Moab at that time, you read about it in Numbers chapter 22, he hired a so-called prophet, a guy by the name of Balaam, to curse Moab. And you find even in early in the history of Judges, in Judges chapter 3, that there was a king of Moab named Eglon who actually invaded and dominated Israel for 18 years. The Moabites, not only were they the enemies of the people of Israel, man, they had a wicked god whom they worshipped. The god's name was Kamosh. And Kamosh was worshipped through Child sacrifice. The people of Israel, when they moved in the promised land, they were, I'll tell you what, they encountered the Moabites. I mean, they feared them, but they understood that these were true enemies of God. And yet, because of the famine, notice that this certain man of Bethlehem, which means, by the way, house of bread in Judah, he goes to sojourn in the land of Moab. He leaves God's people, God's promised land, and he goes to Moab. To give you perspective what this would look like, it would be like if you had Jewish believers in Christ living in Israel, deciding to go and to sojourn and make it in Iran. That's what this would look like. And so that's where they went. Their nation was unraveling. And God sometimes allows his people to live through the experience of a nation that is unraveling morally, culturally, in society. But sometimes God even allows his people to go through the difficulties of the destructive effects of earthly calamities. Notice what it says in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. God had established a covenant with the people of Israel, not because they were awesome, great, powerful, in fact, they were weak, the weakest. That could be found. And God is going to demonstrate his power, his love, his covenant commitment. And he does it by establishing a covenant with Israel, taking them out of bondage when they were in Egypt, taking them to the desert, giving them the law, giving him his presence, following, leading them. They learned how to follow, taking them into a promised land, a land filled of milk and honey. He said, I want you to drive out the Canaanites and all their worship and their false beliefs. I want that done with. And if you just follow my ways, cherish me, because I am the God, love me, I have made you, and that is how life is meant to be designed, you will experience untold blessing. I will provide for you. But, but if you should not, you decide, you know, I'm smarter than God. I don't really need him. I'm going to do my own program. I'm just enamored by the things of this world and make it in life, and you leave the one true God? He says, I will get your attention to have you thinking once again about me. And I'll bring judgment upon you. And he did. And you can read about it. I mean, later in Elijah's day, you find that like, God would bring judgment because they were worshiping Baal, the Canaanite god. And I want you to know that when they moved into the promised land, God said, listen, I want you to completely get rid of the Canaanites. Their wickedness and their evil has reached the limit. You get rid of their idols. I don't want you in any way, shape, or form to engage in the false worship that the Canaanite and their demonic gods have existed for this time, and they will not repent. But you know, the people of Israel didn't obey God. They thought they had... Other options. They could make it work. And so when they moved into Canaan, okay, in the land of Israel, uh, the Canaanite gods, Baal, okay, Baal was seen as the God who brought about cultivation and agriculture. He was the one that brought rain, and he was the one who produced crops. And I want you to know this is wicked, but you want to see how twisted religion can be when it's man made and not God given? You have Baal the Canaanite god, but he has a counterpart, a female, the Ashereth. And at the Ashereth was the female counterpart to Baal. And how their religion worked is it was through the sexual relationship between Baal and Ashereth that would result in crops and plants growing. And so this is how they devised their religion. They had all sorts of cultic prostitution it was very alluring to the people like, yeah, you engage in this, this wicked sexual relationships, prostitution, but you do it in the name of religion, and that gets Baal and Ashereth then to bring a fertility to the land. And I want you to know that was very alluring to the flesh, to the Hebrew people. It was one of the reasons God said, I want it completely gone, but they didn't. They knew better than God, and they engaged in these practices. In fact, like Gideon, for instance, Gideon's dad had an altar to Baal, right? These are the people of God. These are some of their leaders. Gideon ended up tearing it down. But you see, God's words were coming true. There was a famine in the land. It was as if the amber light of warning had gone on where God is saying, listen, listen, you are drifting far from me. And according to the covenant, I will bring judgment to bring you back. And that's exactly what you find here. There is a famine in the land. And notice, they move to Moab, enemy territory, and he takes his wife and his two sons, in verse 2, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. He likely was a rather prominent member of the community in Bethlehem. And he, uh, he married a wonderful gal. Her name, Naomi. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. If you're a single guy, thinking like you like to get married, let me tell you, it's going to be a good idea if you can find a gal who could be called Pleasant. Okay, so Elimelech did what we uh, counsel folks do, marry up. Guys, that's what you want to do. And he did. He married Pleasant. And um, they had two kids. In fact, look at right here. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Mullen and Killian. Um, While the names of their kids are pretty revealing. Mullen means sickly. Okay, and Killian means, uh, like, failing. So, obviously, when their kids were born, they didn't have super high hopes for the kids, right? I mean, notice you never name any of your kids Killian or Mala. You're just never going to do that. Why? So, here they had their two boys, and this is how it had come across. Yep, here's sickly, and here's failing, right there. Not a lot of hope, not a lot of promise, but you're taking those two boys... And They're going into the land of Moab. They're, notice they're referred to as Ephrathites. And Ephrathah was the land where Bethlehem was kind of like in the center. And they're leaving the promised land. And they're going into Moab because of a humanitarian crisis. You know, sometimes God brings his people through some significant earthly calamities, like a pandemic, or in this case, a famine. You know, it was interesting when we read the word famine I didn't hear a single gasp or anybody like, whoa. Because, you know, as Americans, almost all of us, we're totally insulated from this word, you know? When we are starving, you ever said that? I'm starving. What do you do? Why well, you hit the fridge, right? Whoosh, you open it up, take a look at your pantry, right? You've got all sorts of stuff. If that's not suiting your fancy, what do you do? You jump in the car, Taco Bell, you know, the $5 box combo. That'll get you through, right? Because when we're starving... The only time that we'll ever starve ourselves is like, well, you know, I've I've I really got to trim down here, or I need to look good for this event, and so we will intentionally starve ourselves. But it's all it's kind of a vanity deal, right? Starvation is real. We we try to avoid it. Watch the next time you see a picture of people that are starving, like the ones where you can count all their ribs, right? You see their arms, like, whoa, there's. There's, there's nothing on there. And what happens? We just like recoil. Like I don't, I don't even want to look there. I, I don't want to think about it. Emaciated. Or when they, all those like listless children and they're just kind of down there in the dirt and flies might be like buzzing around their head and their mouth is just open. Famine. It'll eat you alive because you're starving to death. And that's what they were experiencing. And so they make their way to Moab. You know, it says that uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? So does judgment. When God brings judgment, do you know that even the faithful are going to experience some of the implications of that? And that was what I believe is the case for Elimelech and Naomi. Naomi. And their two boys. We don't know for certain what their spiritual state was, but they certainly had some pretty awesome names. Must have been pretty devastating to be walking to Moab, to the land of Israel's enemies. Can you imagine? As they're walking, they're thinking, "Wow, we're the promise. We're the promised people. We're the people of promise. We're God's chosen people. We are um, the ones who uh, have been given the promised land, and yet." We come from Bethlehem, the house of bread, and there is no bread. We're starving. I can see it in my kids' faces. Where is God in all this? Why doesn't he help us? And so they move into Moab. If you've ever lived as an outsider in a foreign country, you can relate a little bit just how difficult that is. You never seem to really fit in. The dress, the language, the culture, it's all different. And some of this doesn't even make sense. Like, why are you doing this? And what, what's happening here? I want you to know they had all those experiences. Life didn't make sense. It was hard. I mean, think of it. You know, apart from the Native Americans, all of us are immigrants, right? The great melting pot of America. But how quickly it changes. I mean, I've got relatives that, you know, like had immigrated here. But do you know how quickly it changes? You're like, oh, well, that, here's, here's new people. And they're, they're from some other place. And we just kind of ignore them. Or they're in the way. Or even though we may not say it, we treat them as if they're in a different class. So quickly those things happen. I want you to know, for Limelech and Naomi and the boys, they were experiencing it completely. And, you know, they're sojourning. It means a temporary trip. There weren't... They weren't planning to stay there, like, for a long time, but just to kind of get through this famine. There were no modern-day kind of conveniences like sending texts or Facebook or email or a phone call or hop on a plane for a quick trip to go visit the parents, go back home just for a little bit, see how they're doing. None of that. But I want you to know that uh, the difficulties they faced moving to Moab, they are just getting started. You see, sometimes God allows his people to go through the downward spiral of a nation. We're watching that right now. Sometimes God allows his people to experience the destructive effects of earthly calamities, like a famine or a pandemic. And sometimes God allows his people to experience the devastating pain of personal loss Take a look at verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Naomi thought this would never happen, that she would cross that milestone in a foreign land like Moab, the people that hate us. Her husband, Elimelech, my God is king. He died She was absolutely devastated. Grief would ebb and flow in her life for the rest of her life. And she would now join the ranks of single parents, but doing so in a foreign land. Now, she felt like she had some hope. One of the great uh, prides of an Israelite mother was to have children, especially a male child. Because that allowed her husband's name to continue. The name of her family would move forward. And she who I had, like, a cord of two strands tied together. She had two boys. Two boys, which was her hope that the family line would continue. But it was also her hope that, like, these two boys would care for her and provide for her. She had a safety net. Her two boys, hopefully they got better than just being sickly, you know, and... um, Failing, but she had hope. And so these two boys, we know that the time their dad died, they were not married. We see that uh, they took matters in their own hands and they got themselves married. Look at verse 4. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. The problem here isn't that these girls aren't perfect, Ruth and Orpah. It's like things probably couldn't be worse. These are Moabite women. How is the Moabite God worshipped? Child sacrifice. No, 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 no. In an ancient world where survival was everything, to have your boys marry Moabite women who were accustomed to sacrificing their children was absolutely devastating to Naomi. <laughs> I mean, she, I mean, like the Moabites, they, they couldn't even go uh, into like, Jerusalem until like the 10th generation. I mean, this is a huge deal. And her boys have married these two women. And, you know, this is how it would work in the ancient world it was pretty much like prearranged marriages for the most part. And what would happen is, like, if you're a girl, your dad would get together with a guy, another dad, who had a son, and oftentimes it was seen like, get a marriage that would be at least mutually beneficial. You're always trying to like move up, things that would be advantageous for you. But uh, for Naomi, why? her husband's dead. There's no dad to step in and to arrange things and to try to make a good connection here. Uh, and frankly, there's nobody in Moab that would want, you know, really anything to do with them, right? They're foreigners. They are from Israel. They do not belong. No, uh, don't get the idea that Ruth and Orpah are like the cream of the crop of the Moabite women. Not exactly. And they have some interesting names. Orpah. The name means stubborn, and Ruth means friendship. And so you've got, think of it, sickly, merry, stubborn. I can assure you that is going to be a challenging marriage. Now you got failing, marrying friendly. That might work, but you know, I mean, it's, it's going to be rough. That's their situation. And so these two boys take these two Moabite women, but you know what? The problems don't end. There is no announcement of a baby on the way. Neither Orpah or Ruth seem to be able to conceive. There's got to be a child. There needs to be a son. In an ancient world where survival was everything, the hope of survival is diminishing for Naomi. No son and so in her sleepless nights and her restless pleadings with God, like, God, where are you? She just can't seem to find an answer. It doesn't seem as if God was listening. Tragedy, trouble seemed to march on in her life, unopposed. It didn't seem like there was the army of God, the angels, help anywhere. It seemed as if it was just one challenge, one trial, one heartbreaking difficulty after another. You know, perhaps you can relate to experiences like that. The Bible records them in full, unvarnished. Like Psalm 10, verse 1, it says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Naomi could have said that. Well, these 10 years of double infertility didn't end with a significant celebratory announcement of, hey, we've taken a pregnancy test, and we're expecting. It actually ended with death. Take a look at verse 5, if you can. Then both Malone and killian also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. The premature death of her sons was the worst possible scenario for Naomi. The light in Elimelech's house, his name, and in Naomi's heart, went out. It's gone. The light had gone out. What she feared most had happened. She is now extremely vulnerable. A foreigner living in a foreign land where she is despised, is going to be easy prey. She has no income, no hope, no security, no defender, nothing. Absolutely reduced to nothing. And when they buried Naomi's sons, they buried her. That's what it was like. Overnight, her life was completely diminished. And she's looking up at God at, from ground zero. Maybe you can relate to that. You know, in our post-9-11 world, our world in which we're struggling with the pandemic, people ask, Christian leaders, maybe you've been asked, you're a known Christian, where is your God? Why doesn't he act? Where is God in the midst of this? I want you to know that those questions, when I'm asked that, they, that doesn't get me to doubt the existence of God, but it does tell me that uh, there's a lot about God that I don't fully understand and when you give the statement well his ways are not our ways that is absolutely true it's biblically true and it helps us but it doesn't really address the deep-seated pain in our life at least fully and here in her dark hours her feels like that knife has been driven in her heart and twisted she's asking god where are you I just don't feel like I deserve this. But you look at not only the 9-11 moments or the pandemic or the things that make the evening news, but if you're like me, you've got events that have gone on in your life that perhaps are even more troubling than what you hear about in the news. Deep loss, significant betrayal, family issues you never thought you'd face. Maybe you're going through that right now health issue like you gotta be kidding i tried to take care of myself maybe you've got a a kid who is totally wayward and he's running or she's running in the wrong direction as fast as they can and he's just piling on the shrapnel and the damage and the hurt and the pain i want you to know sometimes people say you know well things work look worse at night but they'll be better in the morning i can tell you that's not always true right And it most certainly wasn't true for Naomi. And Christians, why sometimes we can actually be kind of like great pretenders. See, we're like, well, I don't want God to look bad, and I certainly don't want to be a disgrace to the gospel. So we kind of like airbrush things, and we're going to just put a happy face and just smile and just say, well, things are just fine because we don't in any way want to detract from God, and yet inside, why, we're we're just eroding away. And we don't have answers. And I want you to know something. God will not participate in the masquerade. God wants to deal with reality. The most real book there is, is the Bible. The Bible whitewashes nothing it points all the trouble, all the difficulty, all the heartache, all the disgrace, all the death, and it just presents it in very real ways. In fact, it's like almost as if God invites the questions, the awkward questions. It says in Psalm 34, 19, at least the first part, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Is that not the case? But somehow somehow God meets us in the midst of the greatness of our broken lives. You know it's interesting. God never told Job about the conversation. You remember how Satan threw out those accusations? The reason that, that Job worships you is because you're just real good to him. Change his circumstances, he'll change his behavior real quick, right? Job never found out the side of eternity about that, those accusations. Naomi was never given five reasons why you're going through this. And yet, somehow, they met God in the midst of their pain. And what God does when we seek him authentically, genuinely, when we will turn to him, is that he gives us a faith that allows us to weather the greatest of adversity, a realization that God has me even though I feel like I'm in a free fall, and that I'm able to hold on to him. And here you've got Naomi, but she's going through her own tsunami. But I want you to know in the hurricane of all her hurt and pain and grief, now she's got these two daughter-in-laws as well. And when you're going through hard times, I want you to know it is, fine. It is hard to find hope in hard times, isn't it? And what happens is that hopelessness seems to just kind of come over. And it's like our pain, is just, it just draws us down. Sometimes we don't even function very well. There are times where maybe you can't even really move. Humor vanishes. And what happens is it seems as if the life of our, uh, uh, the light of our life is just flickering and about to go out. That's how it is for Naomi. Except God. God is at work. It's, it's kind of like this. You know, when you get up in the morning... And you're like sitting there and maybe you're reading your Bible or having breakfast or getting stuff ready for the day and it's dark outside. But then you see the sun just starting to come up. And the dark black sky then turns suddenly dark blue but then there's that just slight sliver of yellow. And the sun is rising. I want you to know that what's going to take place is God is at work. It's like the fulcrum statement in the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan, is on the move. It seems like everything is ice, darkness, and everything has failed. But God is at work. Take a look, verse six and seven. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of uh, she she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people. In giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters in law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi had heard that God, Yahweh, the Lord, had visited his people, and there was bread in the house of bread, there was food in the promised land. We don't know how she heard. Whether it was from travelers or caravans making their way, perhaps someone was sent from Ephrathah, from Bethlehem, perhaps itself, to tell Naomi and other sojourners, God has visited his people. We have turned back, and God is bringing what we need. There is food, there is bread in the house of bread. And Naomi hears this statement it's not Baal. It's not Baal is kind of visited, and he got together with Asherah, and now we got some food and rain around there. No, no. God has shown up. That is what she hears. And here is the key word to the book of Ruth. It's found multiple times in chapter 1. It's the word return. In Hebrew, it's the word shub. And in the Hebrew text, all throughout chapter 1, return, 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 But even in chapter 2 and chapter 4, you see the word, and the Hebrews loved it. You see, when the Hebrews would hear a story and they read scriptures, they were looking for a key word that was repeated multiple times, and that's what this book is all about. It is the word that is used to speak of one who returns to God to experience the promise and the peace and the delights of his covenant. It's the word that's actually from the same Hebrew word of repent. If you want to know what it looks like for someone to truly come to trust and know God, you hear the word return and watch how it's played out in the book of Ruth. You see, Naomi heard that God had provided bread and so she returned. It's interesting. Remember when Jesus told the parable of the the prodigal son? Remember, uh, well, the prodigal son, he's out there doing wickedness about as fast as he could find it. And finally, uh, his money came out, ran out, and he finds himself trying to eat the same pods that these pigs were eating. And he remembered that in his father's house, there was bread enough for everyone. It was instrumental for him coming back to the father. So we see here in Ruth. It's the key word. And so she moves out. And that's what God does. He uses trials to to address issues in our life to bring us back to him, to bring us into a deeper relationship with him. A lady in our church told me that um, God had used pain in her life. In her case, it was miscarriages. And she said, God used the pain in my life to get me on the path to do what he was calling me to do. And she said, quote, there was no doubt I am a stubborn human being. But God used the brokenness and the pain to begin having her move forward. Never underestimate the power of a testimony. Never underestimate the power of a testimony. Naomi had heard, verse 6, that God had provided, that God was at work, Yahweh, and it had her move forward. You know, our testimony is an expression that God is at work, that He is not only great, that He's good. Almost everyone here has heard a testimony that was instrumental in you placing your faith in Christ, right? Think of the people in your life, they told you about God, what Jesus had done in them, through them, what he was doing for them. You saw it, you heard it. I want you to know the power of a testimony can never be underestimated. You hear about Christ how he forgives sins, how he paid for him on a cross, how he rose from the grave, how he's at work in your life, giving you strength, and even in the times when you're going through your difficulties and your pain and you don't have all the answers, you are in the heart of the trial, you can say, but even though I'm hurting and I don't have all the answers, I am trusting God. Just that simple statement, it infuses hope. Who knows who will come back home when we just simply speak the testimony that God is at work. You see, when we're focusing our faith on the goodness of God, what happens is it fans the flames of hope. And friends, that's what happened here. And that is what's needed in our day. We need hope. Hope in the midst of this pandemic, the unraveling of our society. I mean, we've got all the deconstruction of all these Christian faith. Many churches have just turned to entertainment just to keep people happy and coming. I want you to know what is needed is hope in the midst of the hardships of life. And friends, you've got it. God uses just the simple testimonies. And so the challenge for us is will we speak? Will we speak a word of testimony so that people can hear how God is at work in your life? I challenge you, do that this week. But also be listening. Listening on how God is at work in the lives of others. How God is at work in our world, I remember hearing the story of a, an American Indian that went with a friend to New York City, and he had never been in that city. And it is crazy—people everywhere—and he had just been unaccustomed to any of this: horns honking, taxis going everywhere, people, just noise, just everywhere. And as they were walking uh, in downtown New York, this American Indian goes, "I, I, uh, I hear a cricket." The guy goes, No, you don't. There's no way, man. There's thousands of people here. You don't you don't hear a cricket. No, 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 I do. No, I think the cricket's over here. And he, he crosses the street, goes to one of these big huge concrete planters, moves some leaves, and sure enough, pulls out and there's a cricket and he's got it right there in his hand. And his friend goes, What? You have amazing ears that you can hear like this. And his friend said, No, I my ears are just like yours. It all depends on what you're listening for. He says, here, I'll I'll show you. So he reached into his pocket, pulled out some coins. He said, watch this. And as soon as he did that, and those coins hit the concrete, within the whole block, everybody turned around, like, looking, because they're all in tune to that sound, the sound of money hitting the concrete. What's in it for me? And so he said, see, it's not my ears. It all goes down and depends on what you're listening for. So are you listening to the testimonies of how God is at work, recorded in scriptures, given today in people's lives? Friends, if all you're in tune to is the noise of this world, you're likely missing the message of heaven that tells us that God is not only great, but that he is good. He can be trusted. He has you. He's at work. Focusing our faith on the goodness of God fans the flames of hope. Here and return. Let's pray. Lord.